0: fire indie publisher extravaganza to summarize the first two part one was with nathan from dead inc in liverpool loads of books coming out this year good at arts council bids part two is with raw from comma press well-established press in the north publishing only books from muslim bank countries and now part three is with the smallest of the do you know i mentioned how small they are in both of the previous podcasts and i'm not that might is that will that wind them up I don't think so. I think they—they they know they're the smallest of the three. You know, you got to start somewhere, right? And I wanted to get three different sized publishers on, so you kind of get a flavor. I hate that word. I hate that phrase. Why did I say that? So you can get—I almost said a taste. That's not it either. You get an idea of what it's like to both run. Uh, an independent publisher of different sizes and also what it's like to be published by them and also their submission regulations regulations the re- submission guide guidelines God, I am still hungover in case you couldn't tell um, I'm still in Burley Fields that is a helicopter I just moved out of the fucking way of where I was because two guys started playing football behind me bloody football. Like, I know this is England, but Jesus Christ. Does it have to be everywhere? Um, yeah, so I move to this quieter space, and a helicopter decides to go by. The skateboarders are gone, um, and I'm actually just underneath the bridge from the Joy Division uh, album cover. I know I've, I've recorded from here before, but um, not... Not recently. I'm just going quiet for a minute because there are people walking very close by. And I'm quite self-conscious, despite the fact that I'm going outside. I don't know why do I go outside if I'm self-conscious. I'm self-conscious and also I need attention as well. So what the fuck? It's not easy being me. Tom um, Kuehl, who I interview in this episode, was a really nice guy. And uh, he even kissed me on, right on the face. You probably see that image that I put online. You know, those huggy photos I often do, those, uh, a lot of times, they are being forced to do that against their will. It's almost an assault by me. Tom, on the other hand, was well up for it. He was up for the hug and then some, which uh, might have something to do with the six or seven pints of beer I made him drink. I didn't make him drink that much, and he didn't drink that much. He had a couple. And uh, I, it, drinking is highly encouraged on this podcast. Incidentally, I've been asked a couple times why there isn't a huggy photo of me and Kit Duvall. There actually is a photo that exists of us hugging, but I, it's probably the worst photo I've ever taken in my entire life. I just bought my new iPhone, and it proved way too huge for my someone with my Donald Trump-sized hands to handle. Um, I don't know how people do it with one hand, really. How do people take selfies with these enormous phones? I can barely text with it. I got three really blurry, shitty photos that I can't tell you how bad we both looked in them. I don't know how I managed to do that, because Kit Duvall and I are both incredibly attractive people. So I am no photographer. (laughs) I am not leaving that bit in. Anyway, so that's why I've gone with her stock photo. Uh, Not so with Tom. With practice, I've just about managed to figure out how to do these photos and, you know, I really wish I had proper man hands, that I could just, you know, just life would be so easy. Oh God, the football people, they're actually walking towards me now. I just moved away from you, you idiots, did you not see that? You know what, I think he just heard me and he's turned around. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He did. He's, he's laughing. Anyway, as I mentioned in the first two interviews, these are shorter podcasts without outros. Don't worry, the later podcasts will return to their usual length, and with any luck, they will be with seriously famous writers. I think I've given up on the dream of interviewing Stephen King because of the absolute ton of lit podcasts that have sprung up in the time since I started this one, I say that like I ever had any chance. Even if even if this was the only literature podcast in the world, any chance talking. If you know Stephen King, hook a brother up, yeah. It's not gonna happen. You're a new song. You're a new song, baby. You're a new song, baby, to me. Oh, I've been I've taken to singing that whenever I feel depressed. Uh, I cannot get that head that head out of my song. You know what I mean. As I was saying, in addition to the interviews and usual flabby chat you get from me in this section, I will also be taking you on my own journey towards getting published. That's why the first three are with publishers. You see, there's a method to this madness. I'm not sure how these uh, podcasts are going to shape up and how this journey that I'm supposedly taking, once I start submitting my stuff... To publishers I don't know how it's gonna go I haven't got any big plans there will be a beginning and that is now and there will be an end and that will be abject failure Uh, but hopefully there'll be something to talk about in between and with any luck it'll at least be funny for you to listen to I have to say though if my first foray into submitting to agents is anything to go by I suspect the end will be massive depression what I won't be doing this time, I tell you, is self-publishing. I believe it's in this interview with Tom that we talk about self-publishing and about how much I hated it and how much I will never, ever do it again. But it could, it could have been one of the earlier interviews in my rapid-fire indie publishing extravaganza. I made some beautifully precise notes from each interview, but I've fucking lost them. So I am winging it. I can't actually remember entirely what each... Episode contains, so you're just going to have to listen to all three of them. You know, it's tough luck. If you ever see me in the pub, ask me about the time an agent asked me to resubmit and I refused, choosing to self-publish instead. Yeah, that that happened to me. I'm not sure if I'm going to tell that story on this podcast because it's terrible and uh, it's it's why I'm doing podcasts and not actually writing. You're a new song, you're a new song, baby. Like with Raw and Nathan, I interviewed Tom outside my favorite place in the whole wide world, home in Manchester. But unlike with Raw and Nathan, it was really cold the day I spoke to Tom. You can genuinely hear Tom getting colder and colder as the interview progresses. uh, Until the end, where he is full on shivering, chattering teeth a lot. Tom is very fashionable. You can't tell that from a podcast, but you probably can from the photo. Uh, So, of course, his jacket wasn't up to the job of keeping him warm in those uh, frigid temperatures. I, of course, was wearing a parka, so I wasn't bothered. Canadians, mate. Fashion is for suckers. I have to say, I did get a fair amount of sick pleasure in making a publisher freeze almost half half to death. Uh, That was a joke, obviously. Tom was great. If there was any publisher I was going to make freeze to death, it wouldn't be him. That's kind of like an Easter egg in this one Tom's impending hypothermia. Anyway, I have been bullshitting quite enough. Here's Tom now. Listen.
1: What was the course? Uh, it was the MA in Creative
0: Writing at um, Manchester Met.
1: Oh, wicked. Yeah,
0: so I imagine you know probably some of the people around there.
1: I know uh, Nicholas Royal. I've yeah, met a few everyone times. knows. Um, everyone fucking knows Nicholas
0: Royal. Yeah. God, he is not getting any more mentions on this goddamn podcast. <laughs> no.
1: um, have you met um, Monique Groffy? Sorry, say that again. Have you met Monique Roffey? No, I don't I, even know what you're saying. Is I, that a name? Yeah, yeah, she's just started uh, teaching there, but she's one of our authors as well. Money. Monique. Monique. Coffee.
0: She's not on your list.
1: She's on, she's, we're doing this year, so. Oh, I see. What does she write? Well, she's, um, she's quite a big name for us. She's a Caribbean writer. Yeah, so I probably should know it, but I, this, that,
0: this is a bit embarrassing because I never, people always saying names are like, well, <laughs> so yeah, that, you, you know who that should be. And there's I, so many, yeah. so many writers.
1: Yeah. Um, but no, she's been uh, Costa shortlisted and okay. um, first book or Orange. No, best she's, book. She's done four or five now. Has she? But this one is. I really
0: uh, should know who she is. That's re- that's embarrassing.
1: Um, but yeah, this one is kind of quite a big departure for her. It's kind of erotic thriller, sort of te- literary erotic thriller kind of territory. And that's where Whereas you before, guys. Yeah, because um, her she was published by Simon and Schuster before, and they just wouldn't touch this. They were like. We can't market it.
0: Yeah, and you guys swooped in.
1: Yeah. How did you hear about it? Uh, Her agent sent it to us. Really?
0: That's good. So you guys have gotten a name out now where your, you know, people actually send you stuff. I I don't know how small or big, it seems like it's quite a small.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's only, yeah, there's only three of us and a couple of kind of associates Mm -hmm. who do, um, you know, who kind of help out as Mm -hmm. and when. So, yeah, it's kind of early days and starting out. Yeah. Are you enjoying it? (laughs) Yeah, mainly. There's a lot of stress involved. But, yeah, yeah, sometimes, after we released our first book, just being able to kind of hold it in your hand and read it cover to cover properly is... Mm. It's a really nice moment. Yeah. Do you guys guys have some kind of weird underground meeting thing,
0: don't you? Isn't there a group of you that kind of...
1: Well, we have a salon in uh, London that we run kind of three or four times a year, Mm -hmm. which is basically just getting a lot of publishing people... Writers, reviewers into a room and getting them all very drunk. Yeah, it's we kind of it was influenced from going for it to a lot of uh, launches in Manchester and thinking the nicest bit about it is always afterwards when you get the obligation of listening to readings out of the way and just all go to the pub. We thought oh, we'll just have an event where we skip the boring stuff, take everyone straight to the pub and see what happens. Pretty yeah.
0: much. I imagine you have, has anything come out of it ever,
1: like uh, work wise, um, or is it just fun? It's, it's fun, really. Because, you, I mean, you know, it's like you talk to people online all the time and never actually meet them. I think it's funny because it is a fun event, but I think it, a lot of people also find it quite stressful because it's, uh, you know, with the book world, it's getting a lot of very socially awkward people into a room and forcing them to meet strangers. Mm. So... Uh,
0: I think it might be different if in the indie book world, I think that I, I noticed a discrete difference between... Uh, indie presses and big ones. Because the big ones, it's yeah. like it's especially from London. They're really in your face. Like they're very like social. Like their whole life is social gatherings. Isn't oh
1: they? yeah, and they they have to. And I've noticed a strange thing. I went to a launch party in Shoreditch a few years ago, and um, Sam, one of the uh, Sam Mills, the co-director of Dodo Inc. Quidditch of Will Quiddity Self. of Will Quiddity. Self, yeah was uh, <laughs> Wait, just don't tell I am like, editing that out of the podcast. Don't tell her I said that. No, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not a bad idea, a bit of a tie-in. Mm. Um she was kind of meeting people and they'd say, um, you know, what do you do? I'm an author. Yeah, oh who are you published by? No one. And they'd say she'd say Faber and Faber and they'd go, Oh yeah. And she'd go, It was for a YA book and they go, Huh and then she'd say, and now I'm published by Constable Robinson and they kind of adopt a face in the middle of those two things and it you know there's a real kind of sizing up process yeah. going on yeah uh, Thank fortunately you our know. events haven't really had that so yeah do you put on a lot of events yeah i mean we try to we've had um with seraphina madison her first book dodge and burn we did uh, manchester launch we did various london events um and we've done the same for all our authors since then so yeah anywhere they'll have us really
0: yeah how did you get in touch with Serafina?
1: Well, one of um, one of Sam's friends, uh, James Miller, is uh, the uh, creative writing tutor at Kingston University, and he basically came to us and said, "This is the best writer that I've ever had on my course." Gosh. And we saw one of her stories in The White Review, and the first sentence of it just made us think, "We have to publish this book." It was kind of the thing that got us going, really. It was so inspiring because it's just unlike anything else that I've seen published anywhere, really. Yeah and um, yeah we just thought we have to do this it was yeah. kind of
0: it's done quite well hasn't it uh, it's, like, had, it's, it's getting press and stuff
1: yeah I mean, it's had brilliant reviews getting it into mainstream press is the massive struggle because there's so many people competing for so little space yeah. but I, mean, I feel like everyone who's read it is re- or most people who've read it have really enjoyed it mm-hmm. so I you know, we're hoping that there's going to be a knock-on. and We're yeah. going to keep pushing away at it, because everyone should, is... Yeah. Sad.
0: Well, you do... You get books that are published in other countries as well, like the... Sean...
1: Is it Rabin? Uh, yes. So he was first public. He was first published in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the only person we've done that with, because ideally we are kind of... We sat, we sat down a little while ago and we were talking about our brand and our ethos and our philosophy and all those horrible things. Yeah. And one of the things... We were talking about the publishers who inspire us, and, uh, and other stories were one of the ones that came up. Um, I love the kind of playful surrealism of their stories, the way they kind of take risks with their narratives and that kind of thing. And they, they're very, or they're, they predominantly publish work in translation. And we just thought, there isn't anyone really publishing that kind of style of writing from English language authors, and I don't know why that is. What, what to you is a risky book then? Well, it's something that possibly falls between genres, something that's not easily categorizable. I think that's, kind of, that's the sort of book where mainstream publishers now are less willing to take a chance. So The Eleventh Letter, for example, our third book, had been around lots of different agents and lots of different publishers who had all liked it because it's partly a ghost story and partly a love story and partly a murder mystery. Each person who saw it said, "Oh, can you make it more of this thing yeah. or more of this thing so we can sell it?" Yeah. And eventually, we just we said, "We'll take this. Mm-hmm. Please take out all of the stuff that you've done to make it more commercial. Yeah. Just make it the best story it can be, and we'll see what we can do with it." Yeah. Did you do a lot of? Do you do a lot of editing with something like that, though? Do you? So you don't have oh, a lot of input into it? No, no. Definitely, we edit to make it as good a story as it can be, but we don't edit it to be. Commercial, commercial. And um, Sam, for ex- has done a lot of work with the literary consultancy. She, you know, she's got years and years of editorial experience. But her approach is very much, I will edit this the way I would want my novel to be edited. Right. You know, she's had a lot of frustrations with people trying to stop her putting talking dinosaurs into her novels mm-hmm. and things like that. <laughs> right. So that's what you mean by
0: risky, basically, so stuff that you can't really find a place on Waterstone's
1: bookshelves. Yeah, I mean. I think there's always a thing where it's important for us to still have a good story as well and novels like the raw shark texts would be a a great example or the the end of Mr. Y where there's something challenging going on in the story but it's still presented in a way that really kind of takes you to the end as well so it's, I always talk about it being thematically experimental rather than stylistically experimental you know the kind of the Girl is a Half On Thing, for example. That's a massively book. popular book. That's probably not our sort of thing that we would do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great that Gally Beggar did it and had so much success yeah, with it. It's and a wonderful book Yeah. That. But we're yeah, we're in a more kind of thematically experimental place, right. I think. Trying okay. to kind of like Serafina's novel, for example, is it's kind of a beat psychedelic beat novel. Yeah. But because it takes it from the female point of view and completely sort of subverts the idea of the male gaze. Yeah. Like we've had some pe- we had a complaint from someone who said that the or a, you know negative comment from someone who said that the boyfriend character Benoit was Kind of a manic pixie dream boy sort of character. <laughs> right. that, that's the well, so what? Exactly. That's yeah. precisely the point. Isn't yeah, it? that was the point. We're yeah. present, or Sarafina is presenting this character in the way that female characters are so often presented yeah. in that kind of cult fiction. World. Right. So, yeah, she kind of the, the author the author of the re- review kind of identified what she was doing, but it didn't quite click with what we were trying to what she was trying to do with it. Right. And I think a lot of people have seen that and really enjoyed it as yeah. well, so.
0: Do you think, I'll wait give you a second. Do you think that uh, big publishers are kind of, and I've, you know what I'm going to ask you because it's a big Guardian article, do you think big publishers are looking at indie publishers and saying, using it as kind of a, what's the word I'm looking for? Waiting for it to be successful from the indies and then swooping in, getting, using indies as kind of a trying ground. Yeah.
1: And to be honest, I don't think there's any problem with that at all. And I was talking the other day about David Bowie, and if David Bowie had a lot of... He spent a lot of time making records that didn't really sell before mm-hmm. he eventually kind of hit upon the thing that worked. Yeah. And nowadays, if he'd been signed to a major label, did two albums that bombed, he'd have been working in a shop. And I think indie what indie publishers can do is they can kind of be that experimental kind of breeding ground. And breeding in, ground.
0: That's the fucking word I was looking for. Sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, and then if someone you know, then if someone else can come along and bring these writers, these developed writers to a bigger audience, then great. You know, everyone wins from that. I think. Hmm. So it's not an entirely punk rock ethos then.
0: There is a business model.
1: Well, I mean, I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I. I guess from our point of view, it's not great for us, but mm-hmm. for the wider reading world, it's a great yeah. thing.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's a really interesting kind of thing that's happening in publishing. That I, I'm, I'm glad you say that. That you think that's a good thing because I, as a as a writer, I think that's a good thing as well, because there's a lot of. Well, if you're a new writer, and you're especially a novel, it takes so long to, yeah. to write something, to, to spend that amount of time writing something and it to go fucking nowhere is a bit of a drag.
1: Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think when... It, I mean, it, it does feel a bit punk rock to me, though, this idea that, you know, small presses have kind of sprung up in recent years, and it's a really kind of thriving scene. And to us it was you know we're not really happy with the books that are being sold to us so we'll start our own publisher you know it's a very kind of rough trade (laughs) sort of uh, and I think that what's happened like we crowdfunded Mm -hmm. because none of us has got any money basically and we had a great kind of groundswell of people saying this is a brilliant idea we want to support you but one of the nicest things was that quite a lot of other independent publishers put money into it what do you mean did they, they? They put money into your crowdfunding? Yeah, like not masses of yeah. money, but you know, individually, there were people from other publishers who did support us. other indie publishers. Yeah, really. So
0: it's kind of it's it's not it's not a competitive no, market then, really. It's no, more
1: I think it's very much that um, I think people see that the the better the indie publishing market or scene is in general the better it is for all of us right you know you re- you take a chance on a book from Gally Beggar and really like it maybe you'll pick up a Fitzcarraldo or an Influx mm-hmm. or you know maybe people will take more chances that's really surprising that other it's so funny because you, you
0: have as, this idea that it's really cutthroat any kind of publishing even indie publishing
1: you think it must be especially because there's, mm-hmm. there's literally no money in it anymore no I think yeah I think what's good for one is good I mean like Stefan Tobler from And Other Stories when we were first kind of getting together he said come and meet me and we'll spend an hour or two chatting about what it's like and he basically said it was a terrible idea (laughs) (laughs) you're going to to get that from everybody (laughs) yeah but he was really helpful. he spent a lot of time and just chatting to us and giving us little tips and contacts and things so yeah if
0: there's one thing I've learned from this podcast talking to writers and publishers it's that if
1: you're in it for the money you really are in the wrong game yeah absolutely mm. it's, um, and I think if we started thinking like that it just wouldn't work yeah well because you'd you, you put yourselves in competition with the big publishers and that's a bit and, stupid really yeah, isn't it and I, I think when you're a kind of small almost boutique sort of press then every book is like a personal recommendation to the reader and you have to you can't just release 14 things and then throw marketing money behind whichever one takes off you've got to be so passionate about each book and you know if i don't really want to read it how am i how am i going to tell anyone else to mm. do does everyone at dodo
0: press kind of dodo press sorry dodo inc have a similar um view on books like do you have similar tastes or do you come yeah. to it?
1: yeah yeah absolutely we can we all kind of agree on what we're looking for and you know when the when the right book comes along I think we can just tell and it yeah if one of us didn't like it then it wouldn't happen.
0: So say a new
1: writer that you'd not heard of
0: do you take submissions?
1: We're kind of we're quite limited in the amount that we take at the moment just because it takes up such a large amount of your time Mm -hmm. and we do still get quite a few. Right so how do you
0: if how would a writer who's not been published yet What's the best way for
1: them to get noticed by an independent publisher then? Probably to publish in places like, I mean, if you're not agented, to get into places like um, The White Review or Minor Literatures or places, 3AM Magazine, places like that where you can get an example. Is that short working, stories? Mostly, yeah, 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 normally. Um, or yeah, or if you're writing articles or, you you know, you're putting your work out there in some way that people can find. I mean, that that's very much how we got to... That's how we got Serafinas, for example. Um, Or to be honest, just personal approaches. If you're, you know, if you clearly have a sort of, um, I don't know what the word is, like affinity with someone, you speak to them online, you kind of see what each other do and you say hey I've written this thing will you have a look at it and mm-hmm. that goes quite a long way sometimes because mm. you already have a bit of a sense of what the person's like yeah. and I realise that makes it sound a bit cliquey but I think you know, at the same time it could be someone in a different country it could be someone you've never met but it's just being involved I think mm-hmm. and Gally Beggar had a thing for a while I don't know if they still do where to submit to them you had to show that you had bought one of their books in the past right interesting model that yeah but uh, like what you just send them a receipt yeah pretty much really so if you okay so if you buy really okay that's interesting but I think it kind of a lot of the time you you do get and we are very clear about on our website for example about the sort of thing we publish and people will just send people will just submit their books to everyone that they can find (laughs) Yeah, we're clearly not a science fiction publisher yep you're utterly wasting your time yep. because even if we loved your book we'd probably have no idea how to sell it to the be best. Right. so I think well that's me finished anyway <laughs> we'll just s- stop this podcast no <laughs>
0: cool.
1: but yeah I think kind of showing that you're kind of active and engaged within the world that we're working in I think is really important mm-hmm. and I know that you've banned uh, name dropping this particular person so I won't mention the name okay <laughs> but they said um you know they, when they teach their creative writing course there's loads of people who don't buy books mm. and he always says to them well, if, if you don't buy books who's going to read your books how are mm-hmm. publishers going to have the money to publish your book
0: Yeah, I want to know who you're talking about now who have mm-hmm. I banned? Go on, say it. Uh, Nicholas Royal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I've not banned Nicholas Royal.
1: He just comes up in every bloody podcast. But that's no, fine. he's, he's yeah. everywhere. He's yeah. kind of the doyen of the scene. Isn't he, he is. I've, I've seen. I've been to events with writers who are much less well-known than he is, but he'll happily come along and read with them. And I think it's, you know, yeah. if everyone had that attitude, I think the yeah. scene would be doing, you know, it'd be really positive thing it for would. everyone.
0: He, um, he, and again, this is. I, I'm doing the MA, so it's... They've kind of had some uh, impetus to helping me succeed, but he, you know, when I first started, he asked me to read with Adam Thirlwell. Oh yeah, you know, I was wow. we just like, wow. That was one that, of my one of my first readings. I opened for Adam Thurlwell. Was that
1: uh, Anthony Burgess? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've is, been to a few of those. It's mm, a good idea. I think. Yeah, excellent idea. So I'll ask you a question oh, oh, okay. I, Go I don't on. know if this has come up. But uh, I, I'm not a creative mm-hmm. writer. It's, okay, you know, I've never had that kind of passion or Mm -hmm. what I think you need yeah so there's been a lot of talking about this in the past but how much do you find that a creative writing course helps you oh boy this is a tricky question for me the thing that surprised
0: me most about the MA I was going in expecting practical advice on how to get published that's what I went in thinking that's what it's going to be all about and it I can't speak for other MA programs, but the one that I'm on at, at MMU, it's not like that at all. It's, if anything, they are telling you to make your book more experimental, not less. That's which good to hear. I was really surprised about, and I, it might be different from MA, other MAs. I think there must be other ones out there with more, say, like the University of Manchester, where it is more about making it a, a work of fiction that will be on a book sh- on, in Waterstones or something. And, I mean, there is that... I mean, you are not fooling anybody. The, m- the better the students do, the more successful they get. Yeah. The better their course does. So, I mean, there is that. But, as far as the teaching is concerned, I've just not found that at
1: all. That's good. I, mean, I think I was always kind of felt quite positively about them, but I assumed that the benefit would just be like, just having the time to do the writing. But if mm-hmm. there's kind of a technical learning process going on as well. That's Massively. That's, that's what they're all about. Um, I think, thought, especially when you read
0: uh, a lot of articles online, and in, well, not online, but in the major newspapers, I talk about the book, they're like, oh, it's a great book, but it's a creative writing book, like you can tell that it's, yeah, and then it's, it's got an a, MA creative book. it's got writing. a sense of place. Yeah. <laughs> That's what <always> the <laughs> Yeah. Whatever the fuck that means, I have no idea. But it they, they say that they can tell, a lot of people will say they can tell when someone has gone through an MA in creative writing, but... I don't know. I've not. It's. I've not had that experience. But because I'm involved in it, of course yeah. I wouldn't. And you know, if my book d- does get published, then we'll see. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not writing it just for the sake of it. I do want the fucker to get published eventually. Yeah, of course. I mean, oh, it's just masturbation. Isn't exactly. It? Totally. Um, and I mean, what have you? And I, the first time around, like I've been writing the same book for about ten years, and I pu- self-published it the f- first time. And I kind of look at that as a massive error in just in judgment. What do you guys, what
1: do you think about self-publishing? And I know yeah, I'm asking it, a publisher. What do
0: you think about self-publishing?
1: Go on. I mean, if I was a writer, I wouldn't self-publish. No. I don't think. I think there's, um, I think that, I know gatekeeping is kind of a bit of a pejorative term, but I don't I think that a publisher can help make your book so much better. Mm-hmm you know you if you just write something for yourself without I mean, i'd be when well, I've written essays and so on when well, I've worked with an editor it's been such a great experience so who can kind of challenge you and say you know you need this doesn't pay off because you haven't built it up properly or you're not clear enough here mm-hmm. i just i think that's such a such yeah. a positive thing and then even a small publisher can help in terms of giving you credibility in terms of being able to get you into places Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, it is a
0: tricky one because there's a fine line between um editors making your writing better and editors like you say sculpting it for a market yeah 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 it's a weird one and it's i think it's one of the most difficult things for a
1: new writer anyway to know to know who to trust really as well yeah that's true I mean there's a guy and I called Dan Holloway who wrote an essay for my blog a long time ago about um, he's very positive about self-publishing and he thinks it's this kind of he thinks it's where the next great literary movement is going to come from and I can kind of I can see where he, I can see the logic of his argument but at the same time when you look at kind of what's out there that's mm-hmm. coming from self-publishing it's, kind of it's like 99% shit it's, well, it's very genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Which see, it, uh, I wouldn't even say that.
0: See, cause I, 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 don't, I, I'm not fussy about genre fiction or literary fiction. Um, Mine probably falls into a, a certain genre, but I think you, I think there's good genre fiction.
1: Oh, absolutely. Sorry. What I what I mean to say is there's there's certain genres that will thrive with self-publishing, but it tends to be erotica, kind of, yeah. fantasy, uh, science fiction. Yeah, And if I ever see another book which has got a title and then says, like, a thrilling story of this, this, and this, yeah. like, all of my <laughs> SEO terms yeah. in the title. It's- yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I know. I think the, the thing that I wish I had done before I self-published was actually read more self-published books. Um, because you get... When you finish writing something and if it, you send it out and it gets rejected by everyone, basically you think, well, I've spent all this time I'm just going to publish it myself but I think it's better uh, it, this is my experience anyway To I'd rather just throw it away and start over rather than self-publishing like, that, that's how anti-self-publishing I am I think self-publishing was a lot more and correct me if, if I'm wrong, your friend knows a lot more than I do but I think it, it was a really kind of popular movement when things like um, Hugh Howey, for instance The Wool series came out, out um, and everyone just thought, wow, well look it's possible or, or E.L. James even like the Fifty Shades of Grey shit which is absolute garbage obviously but there, it was a way for people to say I can actually do this but I think a lot of people who self-publish do it thinking that they'll make you know just people just don't know me they don't know the book they don't understand it and it's going to make millions
1: despite that whereas you know no book makes millions And I guess the problem is as well that it's it's to do with platform and how you sell these things I so mean you can fire your book up onto kindle unlimited but actually it's drowning in you know everyone's doing it so mm-hmm. how does your book yeah you know, what do you do to differentiate yourself on there then? yeah because you know, they just say yes to everything how, yeah it's just thousands of voices kind of shouting in the void yeah and, exactly yeah you know, unless you are such and such a harrowing tale of regency princes then. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i don't want to read that right Euroink
0: um, let's go, bring it back to your to the company that you founded if it doesn't make money how do you why do you keep going well it, other than yeah, I know you you have a real passion for the books to get out
1: there and I mean it, but there's got to be hopefully a eventually it will <laughs> it will make money i so mean, that, it, that's the uh, yeah i mean you know i don't think any of us are expecting to get rich out of it mm-hmm. but you know the aim is for it to be self-funding at yeah at the very least um, so, Yeah, and, it, and it's really difficult to kind of balance that with working day jobs or um, Alex the third director works in publishing already okay. um, Sam is a novelist and mm-hmm. editor so yeah. you know, it's combining all of these things with also the enormous amount of work that goes in mm-hmm. so you know, ideally we'd at least like to be making enough money for some of us to work full time on it yeah well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Is that, so is that a common thing? Yeah. Is
0: that a common thing in independent presses?
1: Well, I think most, most people are probably
0: freelancers. Yeah. And then you, hopefully getting an arts council funding at some point. Yeah, that's the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the idea. Um, the other thing I was going to say, and this is just a random thing that I saw on Twitter, is you kissing Johnny Rotten.
1: On the yeah, face. that was what a, was that all about? That, that was um, a moment that that's kind of where my life was building up to for a long time. <laughs> yeah, so you, you must have some sort of punk rock background, not just in literature. Yeah, abs- well, I th- I'm kind of I'm a frustrated musician rather than a frustrated right. writer. So yeah, um, yeah, kind of first listened to the Sex Pistols when I was 11 on a tape that I found and it kind of changed my life and the first gig was going to see them in 1996 when I was 12 and um yeah and, that, and then from there kind of getting into the underground punk scene in England which was kind of people writing to each other swapping tapes and it was kind of a very organic movement that kind of influences what we do now mm-hmm. as well I think mm-hmm. Um I was kind of in a band, released an album, toured, did all that sort of thing. Who did? Sorry, you did. Yeah. Oh right. What was your band? They were called Billy Ruffian. Oh right. We're sort of a indie punk sort of, a bit like The Fool.
0: Oh right. Okay. And then, so that's how you ended up meeting uh, Johnny Rotten.
1: Basically. Well, that, that was a um, that was his last autobiography, um, The Butter and Me. <laughs> but he, yeah, So he, did, he did you review it or something? No, no. He did a great event at the. Um, is it the Albert Hall in Manchester? Yeah, um, yeah you did a great event there and uh, afterwards there was this sort of three-hour-long queue. To yeah. a, it was a three-hour-long queue with a bar. Right, right. So you're pretty smashed by the time I you get to the front. absolutely hammered, yeah. so I thought I'd just you know, grab him. him and go for it. <laughs> it's was, it was nice because it was where I played my first ever gig. Oh, right. At the uh, Albert Hall. Well, downstairs in the oh, yeah, yeah. basement Still. bar. Um, and. Uh, That's pretty good for a first gig yeah I mean, you know there was about twelve people there it was yeah cool. but, um, so it was where i 'd done my first gig with the person i 'd been to see when I went to watch my first ever gig, mm-hmm. and I pointed out this little spot in the corner of the stage where I'd been sick just after he came <laughs> up and yeah yeah he was yeah and um, you go on, but yeah, it was interesting because he t- spoke a lot about literature in his talk as well about kind of growing up reading English poetry and. Uh, how libraries had given him his education and that kind of thing mm-hmm. so yeah, was a so, nice
0: crossover of interests. yeah and it's kind of a sad state of affairs really what's happening to libraries mm. at the moment um, yeah I don't know if I even want to
1: talk about that it's so depressing I mean really lucky in Manchester to have Central Library which is just amazing it's an unbelievable place yeah do you live around town well I live in Buxton now but I've oh. lived in Manchester since I was 18 so yeah. for like I had a good kind of 10 years there. So how come, so Dodo Inc. is kind of based in London, is it?
0: Except for most of them are. Yeah, except mainly. Except for you, you're kind of like the satellite.
1: Yeah, and I think you kind of have to be really because there's so many meetings and events and things. It's, yeah, and the amount of bookshops there, I think, mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's really helpful to have a presence down there.
0: Yeah. Is it helpful, it's, it's
1: definitely helpful to have a presence down there. Is it helpful to have a presence up here? Yeah, I think so. I think it helps us to... Indie book selling is such a personal thing at times. And being able to just go into a bookshop and hand them a brief and say, look, read this. So you can do that? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we've done with all <clears> of <throat> our books. And I think, you know, you have to have that kind of personal touch because we, d- we can't just say, you know... Waterstones, you're having ten thousand of these. Yeah,
0: yeah. So how does that go?
1: Like, how do you uh, get in touch with them and just go into the shop and mm. give them coffee. Really? Yeah, it's it's down to that. Gosh. Absolutely. That's good. and then you know it, um, I was talking to Jacques from Fitzcarraldo a little while ago, and he was telling me that because um, he spends a lot of time going around bookshops in London, and it's doing very well for him. And uh, he was telling me he'd been in to see someone in a bookshop. And he said, oh, we just sold one of your books to Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, He'd come in, he was looking at things, and I'd said, look, read this book, it's brilliant. And that's the kind of engagement you need. Mm. That's the kind of... Relationship. Yeah. Book reviewing, is that
0: some way for a... Because I know you do a lot of that. Uh, Is that some way for a writer to kind of get their Mm. work to, you said to be a part of the scene and stuff, to
1: get your name noticed and stuff. Is book reviewing a way in? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, I kind of... This is how I got into it was from running my own blog, Workshy Fop, which <laughs> I started in about 2011. And I think when, when I started it, I thought that publishing was this kind of gated city where, you know, they weren't interested in hearing from people outside. And you kind of... You just start talking to people and you realize... That they're a lot more welcoming than uh, maybe you originally thought they were going to be, and you kind of you learn a bit about how things work. Mm-hmm. You learn what different people in the publishing world do. You get to meet people and chat to them, and I think that, I and mean, I think that reviewing books, the more you do it, I think it helps your understanding. I think it helps your writing. It helps your style. It helps you get a broader range of influences that you might not otherwise have got if you were just. Kind of doing your normal thing, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, there's people who, have like, there's a lonesome reader blog, which is brilliant, and he, I know, uh, Eric's a writer, and I think that he's kind of, you know, he's built a name for himself, and I mean, I don't know if he's going to be the literary Zoella. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> yeah. It could but yeah, happen. I mean, yeah. You, yeah, you become part of the industry, and I think bloggers and podcasters and people like that are changing the book industry for mm-hmm. the better, probably. Oh,
0: see. Flattery
1: will get you everywhere. <laughs> What's upcoming for DotaWink? So in our first year, we released three debut authors. Mm-hmm. This year, we're going to release three more established ones. So, Can you say who they are at this point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So our first book is The Tryst by Monique Roffey, who's a former Costa and Orange Prize shortlisted author. Um, it's a brilliant short... I don't want to say erotic thriller Mm -hmm. but it is erotic and it is thrilling Mm -hmm. and it's kind of she's taking on a lot of taboos around kind of infidelity and sexless marriages and kind of it's just got this brilliant energy to the book that Mm. um, I think will kind of surprise and delight a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got Un-American Activities by James Miller Mm -hmm. which is a series of interlinking narratives about American subcultures. It's uh Wow, kind of porn stars, vampires, survivalists—that kind of thing. That sounds r- genre to me. This stuff. Well, there's a love, there's a kind of Lovecrafty Stephen King kind of vibe to some of the stories. Mm-hmm. So, but Gee. I think that's very timely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind, of, you know, these are the people that got Trump elected. So. As, you know what?
0: I was going to say that. I think genre, like, especially stuff like that, is going to be probably more popular now that, you know, well maybe less popular because the world is actually going to be a dystopia.
1: Yeah, I've told James that, like. We started working on this book about a year ago, and more and more of it is coming true. I know. So I've told him he's got to write a kind of socialist utopian fiction. Yeah, time. <laughs> we, I think the next big book is going to be like you say, some really
0: happy, wonderful place that you know yeah. that we can <laughs> escape to from this <laughs> terrible
1: world. Uh, well, uh, yeah, our third book is kind of a quest to do something like that. Mm-hmm. It's by a writer called Neil Griffiths, and it's um, it's a huge novel. It's uh, Dostoevskyan. It's called called Family of Love, and it's about a man who leaves his job and his family in London to go and build a church. He just has an impulse, not necessarily a religious one, but a spiritual one. And he kind of falls in with this loose group of local people who help him with his quest to build this church. And um, And I think it's got a very existentialist kind of theme to it where he... He's not quite sure why he's doing this, but he has an impulse to build something. And it's it's kind of quite a destructive impulse in a way in terms of his relationships with his family and in terms of the relationships of the people who work with him on it. Mm. And it's... Well, because, I mean, it's a crazy endeavour, frankly. Yeah, and the book itself (laughs) is kind of a crazy endeavour. I think it's about (laughs) 200,000 words, but it's the most beautiful... And it's a fantastic story. You know, you read it and it doesn't feel like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I, I, th- I think it I think that, that really puts into perspective what you mean by risky. because I, I can't mm-hmm. think of one that's riskier than that, really. I yeah. know I just I really hope people read it because it's it's a brilliant story. And it says something really important about kind of our times and the malaise that we live in. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's really enjoyable. Yeah. as Yeah. Well, so. And
0: our, I'm surprised. How, how we we are just accepting everything that is happening. When you say Malays, like that's, I, I don't. I, if someone would have said to me ten years ago, the things that have happened in the last couple of years, I thought, well, it'll be
1: a revolution. Like we'll, you know, yeah. fight back and you're just like, nah. Yeah, I think there's um, I kn- a few years ago I had kind of quite bad problems with depression, and I think one of the one of the things that happened is maybe 2003 that you had this huge anti-war movement and it just got ignored completely ignored mm-hmm. and then you had the Occupy movement and then at the end of it nothing, nothing. and I think after that people just feel like what's the point yeah well you know we've tried yeah
0: yeah you've tried
1: and when it's not like
0: it's you know there's a dictatorship now in the United States but it's elected yeah so what can you do like that, that people have spoken they want that
1: yeah, yeah. That's, and, and, I was, and me and uh, Tom Way, the uh, editor at Minor Literatures, have been re- reviewing a book called Against Everything. And we've, kind of, we've been reading bits of it, emailing each other and kind of making this collaborative thing. Mm-hmm. But one of the questions that came up is, like, is this system escapable or not? Mm-hmm. And I think I'm maybe a little bit more optimistic Yeah, I think, you know, if you were pretty a Roman or a uh, feudal peasant, you probably thought, you know, there is no system other than this system. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's a a good point, that. You know, it
1: always seems, when you're in the middle of something, you always feel like you're trapped in it, and it's the only thing that's possible. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. I think think that might be a good (laughs) depressing point to finish Mm. (laughs) on.
1: <laughs> That's great Tom. Thank you. Support, I was call in, you. support indie publishers and we'll Yeah you know, we're we're the we're the, the voice. Fight back. Yeah, I like it.
0: Thank you very much
1: for doing this. Well thank you.